The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, Venus, the moon, communists, and witches. 3, 2, 1, 0, ignition, and liftoff of the Falcon 9, Go Starlink. Wednesday, the 9th of September 2020. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Space Junk, aka Space Archaeologist Dr. Alice Gorman, to talk about many things, including dodgy sci fi movies, space dreams, and why the moon deserves respect and indeed needs to be a person. The moon kind of has a right to its own existence and being. We talk about who used to dominate Venus. Venus is a Russian planet, and people have kind of forgotten, I guess. But we don't talk about Mars because... Mars is a sucky, sucky planet. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to the 9pm moon magic communism on Venus with Dr. Space Junk. Dr. Alice Gorman, uh, I will have to start this by acknowledging that we are in the quarantines uh, as we record this on Tuesday the 8th of September. For me, it's it's day 175 of having to deal with it. That's exactly 25 weeks. Approaching six months. Now, regular listeners to this podcast have heard me babbling on about that enough. How has it affected you as A, an academic, and B, based in South Australia? It's been interesting as an academic because, of course, this has brought great uncertainty to the whole tertiary education sector. Uh, So I guess I've been wondering week from week, you know, how things are going to change, whether I'm going to have a job on the other side. And there's been the whole teaching online thing, which I already did a fair bit of anyway. But Doing it under pressure, I guess, is a bit of a different cup of tea. But apart from that, I guess, so when I did my PhD, which was, I hate to say this, about 20 years ago, I basically (laughs) became really good at being by myself, uh, um, not needing the company of another soul and not ever feeling lonely. So in some ways, the whole culture of isolation that has built up suits me quite well. I suppose part of it is, is, and this is for everyone, I'm sure, it's just the, the uncertainty at a certain point gets to you. And I'm sitting here writing stuff, you know, about outer space. And sometimes that feels a bit weird. It, the contrast between that broader vision of the universe and, and being sort of stuck in the house right now, uh, keeping an eye on the news trying not to get lost in the statistics and figures and try and remember what life on earth is about. Sometimes it's a little, <laughs> bit of a little bit of a messing with my head kind of scenario. Well, good luck with that. And, look, I, I, I want to start – we've got a, a lovely batch of topics to talk about here today. Uh, one of the contributors to this podcast, Peter Leverdink, uh, has suggested we talk about Venus. Now, normally these uh, – trigger words I put into pots of three, but the three we have today work very well as independent topics. So we're going to start with Venus. First spaceship on Venus. You are there. 
with eight international astronauts, seven men and a woman, taking off on the most exciting nerve-shattering journey in the history of man. You are there, braving the staggering shower of meteorites. You are there when the magic of the giant motion picture screen takes you 36 million miles into outer space. There's never been anything like this before in fact or fiction. First spaceship on Venus. Now, that's the trailer for a movie uh, in English, First Spaceship on Venus, obviously, but it's actually originally a East German Polish co production. In German, it was called Die uh, Schweigen der Stern, which is the silent star, or the equivalent in Polish. It also came out as The Planet of the Dead. And Spaceship Venus Does Not Reply. It's from 1960. But before we comment on that, Alice, here's a, a newsreel clip from just two years later in 1962. Even more astounding news from the far reaches of space comes from Mariner 2, which roared off last August for its rendezvous with Venus, 36 million miles and thousands of hours away. Almost precisely on schedule, the intricate communication system begins to pick up signals from our twin planet and relay them back to Earth. Its two sensitive electronic eyes scan the mysterious cloud-wrapped surface of Venus for the 42 minutes that they are near enough. The gap is still some 21,000 miles, but satisfactorily close as astronomical distances go. It will take some time yet for scientists to decode and interpret the signals. These could possibly answer the most tantalizing questions of all space exploration. Is there life on another planet? What amazes me, as I say, is just two years separate those clips. Something I often think about is before missions like Mariner and Voyager and Viking and those others, and it's not so very long ago, like every planet in the solar system had the promise of life. And it's not mm. life, I think. It's it's someone else to talk to. It's someone else to speak to. And, and yeah, then you have this decade where we, we go suddenly from this idea that we're only one mission or one piece of information away from finding our solar system neighbours to effectively a sterile solar system where, you know, if we're lucky we might find a few bacteria or microbes alive somewhere okay to be fair with the discovery of more oceans around the solar system that's becoming a bit more optimistic but I think what was it like when before the 1960s when you know at any moment some piece of information might lead us to realize that there's someone else on Mars or Venus or a moon of Jupiter or Saturn and now we just accept the fact that we're kind of alone here. I mean, what an extraordinary transition. I mean, it effectively happened, well, I, I was born in 1960. It literally happened within my lifetime, given what we've just heard. I mean, mm. when uh, Mariner 2, first visit beyond the Earth-Moon system, as we've heard, 1962, when Venus 
permanently covered in clouds. It was the mysterious jungle-covered planet, right? Was there life? Were there dinosaurs <laughs> on Venus, right? <laughs> I love this. It, it's like Venus has to be an evocation of an earlier Earth. And the whole idea of it, like what else is under clouds, but, you know, these lush tropical rainforests and and a lot of the early science fiction um, you know, building on the idea of Venus, Aphrodite, the planet of love, you know, populates Venus with angelic beings and things that sing and turn it into a kind of a paradise, which is like a, what's the word I want still? It's like those, the land of cocaine and places like this. It's it's <sighs> from an earlier period where people think life has all go, gone downhill and, and the period of paradise was in the past so that kind of gets oh i know what you're trying to say it's this the sense that that as a human species we've gone past the utopia yeah that we've the decline and fall of the human race and somehow there's this still pure undiscovered world and i'm actually conscious of that because up here in the blue mountains um who wrote the land that time forgot well, that was Edgar Rice Burroughs, but that's not who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the author of The Lost World, who was Arthur Conan Doyle. He visited the Blue Mountains, stayed at the Hydro Majestic Hotel in Medlow Bath, looked out across the, the valleys, which are extensive, saw the isolated um, ridges with cliffs 100 metres high or more on each side, and that was his inspiration. That's extraordinary. I had no idea. And, I mean, Charles Darwin had visited here as well. It's, it really is incredible. People, we, we often think of Australia as a sort of isolated place, but, in fact, you know, those colonial sort of networks meant that science was very much interconnected throughout mm. the empire, didn't it? And, and, of course, I suppose the irony is the Wallamai Pine turned out to be yes. living in the bottom of one of those deep, deep gorges. So it's not a totally unreasonable thing to think about Venus, uh, and certainly earlier when there was this whole idea of uh, canals on Mars, although that's Mars and we'll perhaps leave that for another day. This early space age idea of Venus as potentially holding life was up against the Cold War, the early Cold War idea of the hidden enemy. Hmm. You know, that's why they're always, the aliens are always trying to kill us. Now, all right, that makes for a better movie than the aliens are our friends. I, I will grant you that. Uh, but they were the unknown force that we didn't understand. You know, this makes me think of a film, which I'm ashamed to say I only saw for the first time just a few months ago. The Night of the Living Dead, in which the oh. zombie virus, well, it's not a virus, it, there is a space probe launched towards Venus and something sends it off track and it comes crashing back to Earth with a deadly radiation and it's that radiation ah. that infects the zombies. And if I can draw in just a, a completely separate theme, and I didn't know anything about this because uh, I had never seen The Night of the Living Dead before, <laughs> one of the main char- well, the main character is an African American man, 
who survives everything. He survives all of the zombies. He's the last one left standing in the film. And when the rescuers come to to take all of the people to safety, they see a black man standing in the window of a house and they shoot him. Just like that. That's the end of the film. So for me, watching it in in the pandemic times was extraordinary because it joined together. I believe there have been a couple of theories that the COVID-19 virus comes from space. So it joined together that fear of contagion and and racial politics um, in in the time of the virus as it all rolled into one big thing with Venus as the source of the enemy. So if you haven't seen it for a wow. long time still, I reckon I reckon it would bear watching again. All right. Uh, we will have a link to that. It's bound to be on one of the YouTube um, collections of old movies. So I will certainly yeah. link to that. Look, going back to the early space age and, and the physical exploration, we've, we've heard that Mariner 2 was the first one to zoom past for its 40-whatever minutes in 1962. Um, that's only three years since, like, any space probe had gone anywhere, which was Luna 2 going to the moon. Russia was really becoming the leader uh, through the 1960s with these robot spacecraft. And this is an amazing clip. This is from 1967, a British Pathé newsreel. John Robeck, Britain's giant radio telescope, listened in across 50 million miles of space to the new voice of the planet Venus. This is what it heard. That weird noise was music to the ears of Earthbound scientists. It meant that Russian achievement had taken another major step towards the stars. And flying in to Britain, which helped Russia achieve that magnificent space spectacular, by lending our ears, as it were, came Soviet space hero, cosmonaut Valery Bakotsky. The Aleutian airliner had brought the record-breaking Marathon Space Voyager to Britain on a seven-day visit at the invitation of the British-Soviet Friendship Society to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Uh, now there's a lot, a lot going on in that clip. <laughs> you know, something I did a while ago was make a, a a tally of what early satellites were left in Earth orbit in oh, yes. ten years, and it was really interesting because there was barely anything Russian that survived, despite the fact, you know, that they had. Uh, the first ever satellite, the first ever human to orbit the Earth, the first woman to orbit the Earth, the first mission to land on the moon. First spacewalk from memory. Uh, indeed, that is true. So all of this Russian stuff was going on, but in if you look at the early years of the space age in low Earth orbit, there's not much Russian stuff. And I was thinking about this and realised that this part part of the reason was because Russia was putting so many resources into going to Venus, and when I talk about Venus, so so you know, still it's one of my favourite planets. Well, it is my favourite mm-hmm. planet. Mars is a sucky, sucky planet, but as you said, we'll talk about <laughs> that another time. So I, sometimes I talk about uh, the the USSR Russian um, missions to Venus, and and people are quite surprised that there's stuff there, and they've kind of forgotten, like Venus is a Russian planet and people have kind of forgotten, I guess, that this is the case. Yes, Um, and as I put together this segment, I kept 
finding these clips, uh, such as Venera 7, 1970, the first soft landing on Venus. It had a, like a fly-pass bit, but it also soft-landed something. And this is just 11 seconds, but it, it really explains something quite well. December 15, 1970, the Soviets, for the first time ever, successfully touched down on Venus. But on this hostile world, their space probe, the unmanned Venera 7, remained operational for just 23 minutes. Because the surface temperature is 464 degrees Celsius, which is hotter than the melting point of lead. Again, within such a very short amount of time, okay, we look at the same decade and go... Uh, the Americans got to the moon, and yes, the Apollo program did some some amazing engineering. So we we kind of forget that the the Soviets had really good engineering as well, just different. Yes, that's true. Like a whole different tradition of space engineering, and I think it's really interesting if you look at the International Space Station today, you can see the different sort of lineages all mushed together in the one spacecraft. And I guess for the Anglophone world, we're so used to the idea that sort of America won the space race, blah, 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 that it's easy to overlook and, and forget that the incredible space science and space technology that the Russians were working on. I then want to jump ahead to Venera 14, um, which launched 1981, so we're skipping ahead another decade, landed 1982. and. What I want to play for you here is the actual sound of Venus. They had microphones on Venera 14, and it sounded like this. I'll leave this play for a few seconds longer because... Coming up in a moment, this this background sound is suddenly changed. You get these things which which almost sound like wind gusts. There's a couple of them now. And then you think, wow, that's that's interesting. And then, again, in just a few seconds, this really big energetic burst. So you get this kind of sound when your atmospheric pressure is 92 times that of Earth, what do you think when you hear that? I think my first thoughts are how extraordinary it is to have a sensory expression of a planet and what it must be like if you were able to be there in your, I mean, of course, this is radio signals that have been converted into something that we can comprehend with our human ears, but what it would be like to actually be on the surface and the other thing is, is like how dynamic it is. So we tend to think, or maybe it's just me, you think of places that aren't alive or have no life on them as, I don't know, static, still, silent, 
And yet that recording shows us that Venus is very far from that. I've recently been having, well, I don't know, I wouldn't say arguments, but maybe some lively discussions about whether the moon is a dead piece of rock. And, of course, I've been... Oh, really? The side that the moon is, is, is actually a place which changes and is dynamic. And um, I think recent research has shown that Venus does have some kind of active volcanism going on. And I, I find it so interesting, you know, we, we are so wedded to the idea that life is the most valuable thing in the solar system or the universe when we ought to be looking at these planetary environments as things in themselves, as, as their own thing, and, and that kind of experience of, of apprehending something about the planet with our senses as as we heard when when you played that uh and you know you're like you feel I, I don't know about you still but like like you feel is there some napoleonic army that's firing cannons in the background <laughs> like it's well i just keep thinking of these like massive waves of energy if if the atmospheric pressure is 92 times and the temperature earth's and the temperature is what it is then something that we would think of as a wind gust must be this phenomenally more energetic phenomenon. Some some studies suggest that winds on the surface are walking pace. So they're very, very oh. slow. This might be old research that might have been outdated, but 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 they're also kind of thick in that way, you know, mm. compressed and weighed down. So so this is a kind of wind the nature of which we have never experienced. And just thinking about that, I find I find extraordinary. Well, uh, uh, the amount of momentum in something is mass times velocity, right? So if it's oh. 92 times the mass, yes, yes. It, it can still be Super slow. a tenth of the speed <laughs> and it's still, you know, nine times the energy. So or nine times the momentum, yeah. yes. Uh, please, physicists, do not write in and complain. I did do physics at a university level and a little bit of astronomy, but, uh, yes, it was a while ago. Uh, it's different. So what's next for Venus? I mean, I know we've got three nations have launched missions to Mars, and we're not talking about Mars today, but what's happening with Venus? Has it all been filed under too hard? Well, excitingly, people are starting to plan missions to Venus again. So there's a few propositions on the table. And we do actually have some expertise in Australia that could be very, very relevant to this. Uh, some of it's at um, Anstro. So we have a number of instruments which can simulate very high-pressure temperature environments. It could be incredibly useful for... Right, if I can interrupt, Anstro... ANSTO is the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, yeah? Yes, that's right. So they have some, some great instruments that could help in designing the spacecraft. And we also have some planetary scientists who focus on Venus. So it would be a great time uh, for us to get more involved with missions to Venus. The, the big draw card is that Venus is considered to be a twin of Earth, similar size, and, and also... I mean, we were talking about the dinosaurs and jungles earlier on, but the current theory is that Venus and Earth 
May in the deep, deep past have had fairly similar climates. Venus has gone to a bad place with runaway greenhouse effects. And given what's happening on Earth right now, it might be kind of helpful to understand how that process happened. So I'm very happy to say that Venus is back on the table. It might not be a purely Russian planet for much longer. Some of the very most celebrated Americans, of course, are are astronauts. And one of the great things in Russia is that from the very beginning, uh, they had men and women in their astronaut corps, and men and women flew. Um, Unfortunately, in the United States, there was a lot of discrimination, and so only men were chosen for the formal astronaut corps in the beginning of our space programs. But there were women who pioneered. Of course, there were women aviators uh, and women who belonged there. They had to do it privately, so one of the first groups was called the Mercury 13. And so they were a group of Mercury astronaut women who trained and were quite ready for the Mercury missions. Uh, And that continued throughout, whether there were women in uh, mission control, women in particular astronaut corps, and all the way through. Now, that's uh, Megan Smith, who in 2014 was America's chief technology officer, which is a pretty cool gig if you ask me. I had not heard of the Mercury 13 until another supporter, Katrina Jetty, had suggested we talk about them. This is an amazing story. It truly is an amazing story, and I'm really glad it came up. So just to do a little plug here, I'm currently a mentor in the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs Space for Women program, which is aiming to increase the participation of women and girls in space to address sustainable development goal for education and five, gender equity. So I've been thinking a lot about all of those structural ways that women are kept out of space. So the Mercury 13 story, like really quite extraordinary. So in those days, in order to be an astronaut, you had to be a test pilot and women were not allowed to be test pilots. And this was um, kind of the reason across a number of fronts. So, So Sometimes I have discussions with people and they say, don't you understand it wasn't gender discrimination, it wasn't because they were women, it was because they could, they weren't test pilots, so it was nothing to do with being women. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. Um, but there's some interesting stuff around this. So, so, of course, there's the exclusion of women from the military, uh, unless, you know, you're in an a, a admin role or catering or something. Then there was the idea that women, in fact, that women's bodies couldn't stand high gravities, which was a feature of doing the test pilot work. So women were not allowed to be test pilots because it was thought that higher than normal gravities would damage their fertility. And that was the most important thing about their lives, obviously. And I really relate to this because when I was a primary school kid, girls were not allowed to compete in certain athletic events. We couldn't run over certain distances. We couldn't do the triple jump. We couldn't compete in them. We could train in them, but we couldn't compete. And What? This is, this is like literally within living memory because you know, yeah. you're still alive, right? And, and one of the reasons, so like I was in primary school, I didn't really understand what was going on, but we kind of picked up because we were outraged. We were like little country kids in this tiny rural school. We were outraged that we were not allowed to run more than 200 metres. But 
somehow or other we picked up, and we like we didn't even know what this meant, but we picked up that participating in certain sporting events would also damage our fertility. So I really relate to the idea that women were excluded on the basis that that you know they had to protect had to be protected from I mean who knows what damage may have been done to male test pilots fertility as well but clearly they're not defined by that anyway to to come back to all of this um, sorry I'm I'm, oh, I'm just <laughs> sorry I, I this this really does blow me away because the idea that women's bodies would somehow be less robust even though they've got to live in the same environment as the men and they've got this childbirth happening this is this is like the early days of the railways when you thought if you go faster than 20 miles an hour your, your brain would explode yes it, it really is isn't it and i had this um absolutely revolutionary mind-bending experience when i was maybe i don't know i was maybe eight or nine and someone and i was obsessed with planes and some person at a barbecue or something asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up and and I said I would like to be a fighter pilot and they said oh women can't be pilots I was like what what are you talking about like what are you talking about and they explained that women in a cockpit if a bird were to hit the cockpit a woman would scream and put her hands up to cover her face that's why women couldn't be pilots (laughs) so and I was devastated still. I was absolutely devastated. I just had no idea. <sighs> so this, and this is in the 1970s. I'm a, I'm a bit younger than you, but not a huge amount. Not, not much, yeah. <laughs> so this is the environment we're living in. This is, this is the world where women were thought to be too feeble or too hysterical or too emotional or just to have these weak bodies that would be crushed by gravity and so they couldn't go to space and of course the irony now many would argue that women would make much better astronauts because on in general they tend to be smaller and more lightweight they uh, retain body mass under restricted diets so that's in fact the inverse of women who find it difficult to lose weight that's an advantage in space isn't that amazing so there's all kinds of reasons why you could argue that women would make better astronauts than men but but back to the mercury 13 so they were selected from aviators and and women couldn't sort of be commercial pilots or anything in those days either and Dr. Randy Loveless, I mean, that is seriously the dude's name, Dr. Randy Loveless, he put them through the same tests that the Mercury 9 male astronauts were undergoing at the time and, in fact, more difficult ones. And the one that's always stood out for me, so there was an isolation test and the blokes had to go into a room with nothing in it but a table and a chair and hang about for four hours. The women went into full-on flotation tanks for eight hours or something and they all emerged particularly jerry cobb who was perhaps the most famous of the mercury 13 they all emerged you know in fine nick everything hunky-dory so they actually outperformed the men in one of the core tests to be an astronaut Uh, so have we had any uh, popular culture depictions of the Mercury 13. Any films, any books? Yeah, there's been uh, some great books in recent times. One's called Promise the Moon. 
there's been a recent documentary, which I think you can watch on, on you know, one of the streaming services. I'll look that up. There's, I think it's just called Mercury 13. Um, there's been um, a wonderful book about Wally Funk by uh, science journalist Sue Nelson and quite a bit. So we, we da- now they're now being celebrated um, as they should have been. But the, the really sad thing is that none of them got to go to space. And there was John Glenn, who was one of the Gemini astronauts, one of the early US astronauts. He did Mercury as well. Surely he was the first one to do a full orbit. So, so much, much later, they were, they decide, the US decided to do a, a sort of a commemorative publicity stunt, which involved sending one of those early astronauts back up. And lots of people argued that one of the Mercury 13 should finally get their chance to go to space. But they mm. chose John Glenn to do, a, you know, a second orbit of the Earth. And now, of course, NASA is promising to put the first woman on the moon by 2024, which would be pretty amazing. So if you do want to find out more about the Mercury 13, there is a lot of great stuff out there, books, documentaries, series, web pages so we 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 do know a lot about them some of them are still alive and we can celebrate them for what they achieved The successful liftoff of Falcon 9 from Space Launch Complex 40 for this 11th Starlink mission the three planet Skysats and our 58 Starlink satellites are on their way to space. That's uh, Starlink launch uh, number 11 from uh, August, I think on the 22nd of August from memory. And mission 12 was launched last week as well on the 3rd of September. Starlink as a topic is another one suggested by Peter Leverding. Thank you, sir. And I'll tell you shortly how you can join him and get your own topics into these podcasts. Alice, Starlink, <laughs> Elon Musk, tell us more. Oh, I have so many complex feelings about these satellites. So I think this is something that is really going to change how we see the night sky. And Before we get to that, though, mm. Elon Musk sees it as something that is going to really change how people around the world use the internet because he's aiming at, what, 42,000 microsatellites or something that will provide internet to the entire planet. This is the aim. Well, low-cost internet to places that often previously haven't had it. And I guess... Well, you know, I'm keen for everybody to have access, equal access mm-hmm. to such services. But something you'll never hear discussed in all of the publicity around the Starlink satellites is the digital divide. And this is the old idea that access to these services is not equally distributed. And in fact, some countries and some classes of people, women, for example, have much less access to it than before. So you would think that the Starlink satellites might be aimed at maybe redressing some of that. But, in fact, it could go the other way too. It could drive these divisions even wider. And I would love for Elon Musk to employ some space anthropologists, they do exist, to specifically address that and maybe to 
uh, talk about it in public settings so that people, because basically what's being proposed is that his commercial um, commercial outfit is going to provide infrastructure that the governments of some countries is not already providing and some of this infrastructure is terrestrial-based infrastructure, you know, my mobile phone towers, cables, all that kind of thing. So, so what ought to be a government-provided service, service is becoming replaced by a commercial service which is not even based in that country and may not be responsive to specific needs on the ground. I just think it needs mm. a lot more critical assessment and what's happening at the moment uh, is that many countries are granting licences to Starlink and it's happening sort of a bit piecemeal, a bit ad hoc, without a bigger picture being considered. And I don't want to sound like I'm automatically negative about it, but I also have not been satisfied by the degree of analysis I've seen on the impacts on people on the ground. So I have concerns, I guess. Okay, and the main concern we're seeing in the news thus far, though, is the impact on astronomy. Yes. So in the past, there's been specific objects launched into space that have not made the astronomers happy. One of these was the Humanity Star, which uh, Rocket Labs in New Zealand launched mm, two, three years ago, two years ago, I think. And this was designed to be a purely symbolic, reflective, spherical thing that would provide inspiration for people on Earth. And the astronomers rightly said, well, you've made it highly reflective. That is going to bugger up our observations. And this kind of, I don't know, argy-bargy has arisen from time to time over specific spacecraft and specific projects. But what we're looking at now is tens of thousands of satellites, which initially also had highly reflective surfaces, surface, surfaces which are already making a big impact on the visual observation of what's in the sky. And I think a couple of astronomers have said, well, look, you know, asteroid strikes are a thing that has happened. Uh, people might remember just recently a new crater was discovered in Western Australia uh, of an of a asteroid 100 metres across which collided with, this, with the surface of the Earth. So this stuff happens. If astronomers are looking for objects in the sky that could be a risk to Earth and they can't see them because there's too many of these bloody satellites in the way, that's not very helpful. So astronomers are not happy and I was actually present at a meeting um, in Washington last year where this was discussed and so, some, of, some people in the astronomical and space debris community had been in contact with Elon Musk and SpaceX to say, listen, the surface coding you have on Starlink is problematic. Will you consider changing it in order to reduce the degree the satellites reflect light? And these discussions apparently went quite well. Musk said, yes, yes, you know, we will, oh, well, I'm sure it wasn't him personally, but his, someone in his company said, yes, this is something we need to address. We'll keep talking about it. But the issue many had was that this should have been addressed beforehand. It was a bit too late when you've already launched, you know. By that stage, I think a couple of hundred had already been launched. So, yeah, there's, there's issues around astronomy. There's issues around social and commercial impacts in different places of suddenly getting into internet access that's controlled by someone else. 
And there's also what it's going to look like now when we go outside and see Starlink every night. Yes, we have uh, started seeing the photos already with these multiple streaks of these low-orbiting satellites. Uh, And we're only, as you say, a few hundred into it, and it's going to be tens of thousands. Mm. This is quite weird. It is quite weird. And, again, I don't want to be wholly negative about this. I mean, maybe part what comes out of this is something to catalyse people's re-engagement with the night sky. Maybe this will be considered in 10 years from now, people will be thinking of this not just as infrastructure but as some, you know, an an artwork, a a sort of net of close stars around the earth. I I don't know. And it could be really interesting, like this, this could become a new cultural thing. So change is not bad of itself. We've seen a similar thing just as one-off with the International Space Station, right? There are apps to tell you when it'll be overhead and people uh, go outside to look at that. I get the feeling that we're getting more space geeks, in part driven by SpaceX uh, and its competitors. We saw this with the creation of the first satellite phone systems with the Iridium satellites because you would get the reflections off their solar panels. Yes, it could be. I think we we may see it in the same way that during the Industrial Revolution in Britain, we saw the the railways, the networks of railways creating the iron band and iron links across the nation as as a massive symbol of progress. I, th- I think that's an important point still because these are obviously bits of technology that people can by the services of, but they also have a symbolic aspect. And part of this symbolism is definitely to do with, you know, a sort of a masculinist colonial mastery kind of thing. So people, I know this because I see people talking about it, they're going outside uh, to watch the Starlink satellites as an expression of the triumph of technology over, over nature, if you like. Um, and last time we spoke uh, on this podcast, we talked about Mr. Musk and launching his red did. sports car into space. So <laughs> We did. So this, I think Starlink still has a little bit of that kind of symbolism as well. But I think, so one of the things, I mean, I think you're right, the International Space Station is a really great comparison. So it's been incorporated into terrestrial beliefs to the degree that on Christmas Eve, Families take their little kids out to look for the ISS because they say this is where Father Christmas or Santa Claus is circling the earth to deliver his presents. Oh, wow. And I find that quite charming, like it's been incorporated into existing beliefs and in a way that, yeah, um, it's obviously very different at one level, but, but now it's part of something bigger so I guess we'll wait and see how that kind of thing might play out with the Starlink satellites too. Time for some housekeeping. Uh, let me tell you about what's coming up over the next few weeks and also, as usual, how you can contribute to the care, feeding and upkeep of this, uh, this podcast. So next week... 
In this spring series with special guests, it's Dr. Upali Divasekra. You may have heard her on this podcast a few years ago. She's a science communicator. She's a nanotechnologist. She's a molecular biologist. And she is also a dinosaur evangelist, which is to say she's an evangelist uh, for dinosaurs as opposed to being an evangelist who is a dinosaur. So if you are a subscriber and if you have some trigger words or conversation topics up your sleeve, which cover any of those issues or have a a general science-y bent, and that can be quite wide, you'll need to get them to me by Wednesday the 16th, next Wednesday the 16th of September, uh, by midday Australian Eastern Standard Time, and they can go in. So that's next week with Dr. Upali Divisekra. After that, in order, the leader of the Reason Party in Victoria, Fiona Patton, MLC, and I'm sure you'll remember her from previous episodes. So that one can be about politics uh, or all the things that she's interested in. Look her up, Fiona Patton. And then, uh, three weeks hence, Father Carl Sinclair, who's a Catholic priest out at Orange in the central west of New South Wales, to talk about the things that might interest a parish priest in uh, a small rural community. Well, not that small rural community, but you know what I mean. Uh, He's also a bit of a geek. Uh, He also... uh, Yeah, he's an interesting character. I'll tell you more about what we might talk about as things go on. Uh, Yeah, moral moral and ethical view of what's happening in the world. When you think about it, uh, uh, a priest can cover a lot of those issues, can't he? Uh, Or shift, female priest. Not in the Catholic Church, obviously, but, you know, some other churches have that. Uh, Look, thank you, as always. Uh, to you, the generous listeners. Uh, and this episode, I want to thank uh, Ben A., who's taken out a subscription, Bob Ogden, who also has David Bruce, who took out a triple shot subscription. Thank you very much, David Bruce. Uh, he says on his Twitter profile that he's into good food, good wine, great friends, and always good coffee. Good food and good wine is essential. This man is obviously uh, a genius in a number of ways. The good coffee, meh, you know, get those uh, uh, addictive alkaloid stimulants into you somehow. I'm not as fussy as some people, but whatever. So thank you, David Bruce. Uh, Jason Anderson uh, also tossed in some some money. Look, he says he's a tad broke right now, so only five bucks. So I, I like, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, he says he wanted to share uh, a thanks for the content during this shit show of the year. He's in Victoria. We're not mentally okay down here, really. And yes, my, my heart uh, and other organs go out to all of you in Victoria and especially in Melbourne. I know the lockdown must have been quite hard and it's uh, continuing uh, and it must be frightening to see those uh, COVID-19 case numbers. Uh, so good luck. Keep going. I don't think this is over yet, as you know. Uh, thanks also to Jim Campbell uh, and Keith Duddy and Nicole Coombe and one person who wishes to remain anonymous. Thank you all for your support 
uh, this time. Uh, it's really appreciated. If you'd like to join those people and uh, chuck a few dollars into the tip jar, that's at stillgarian.com slash tip, stillgarian.com slash tip. Uh, and you can go from there to click through uh, to hear basically how you or read how you can uh, subscribe to get those extra benefits like trigger words and conversation topics and so on to throw into the podcast uh and if you need uh if you have that already need a reminder of when your deadlines are check your email The man in the moon came tumbling down and asked his way to Norwich. He went by the south and burnt his mouth by sopping cold peas porridge. The man in the moon, personification of celestial bodies. This is something for the moon which seems to have lasted for longer, and I, I know we're going to talk about a more modern interpretation of this, but has the moon survived as a personified body longer than some of the others? Hmm. I suspect that's probably true, mostly because we can still see it. Well, we can see it in such detail from the surface of the earth and because the patterns on the surface are, you know, continually presenting themselves to us for interpretation as rabbits or ducks or old men or old women. So I think, yeah, yeah I think you're probably right about that. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, that's, that's by the by. You have been doing work on legal personhood for the moon. What's driving that? Well, this this actually was an idea that came about through uh, Thomas Gooch, who is the Australian representative of the Moon Village Association, which is a, a sort of global network of people interested in future lunar engagement, and also the writer Keridwen Dovey, who some people um, may have read some of her amazing work, so they decided that they would like to explore the idea that in order to protect its environment and values in the forthcoming period of lunar exploitation and mining, we needed to think a bit creatively and think about how we might do this. And the idea that they proposed was worthy of consideration was thinking about the moon as a legal person. So this is how I kind of got involved in it. And the idea is basically, so NASA and other space agencies are planning to go to the moon. They want to get the water ice at the poles and turn that into fuel and oxygen and water for surface habitations and to further the dream of going from the moon to Mars. But all conceptions of space, this comes back to something we were talking about earlier, if there's nothing alive, there's kind of this idea that we have no moral obligation towards a place. Oh, okay, so this is like Australia's terra nullius. It's a, a, it's a lunar nullius. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, so there's nothing on the moon that we have to consider apart from our own needs. And the idea – and because of this, so there's no framework for considering how you might basically do what we would call on Earth environmental management. And, in fact, there's barely even 
an idea of what the environment is on the moon. And and this is, you know, the people who are saying to me, the moon's just a dead rock, um, so we don't have to worry about it. There's, there's no question here. And this is actually the opinion of the Committee on Space Research, which maintains the, the planetary protection policy. So the moon kind of has zero protection because it's seen that there's nothing there to protect. Some of my research has been about the quality of light on the moon how that interacts with the very particular structures of lunar regolith and dust and what the, the lunar environment of light and shadow is. That's something I've been kind of thinking about for the last few years. And for me anyway, my perspective on this is that the moon has some very particular qualities that come from it having next to no atmosphere uh, and, and the way the sunlight strikes it at different angles and creates this very distinct shadow landscape. And, in fact, the water ice everybody wants at the moon is protected by two billion-year-old shadows. Now I have a a very brief uh, clip from a, a NASA explanatory video on that point. As you watch the moon over the course of a month, you'll notice that different features are illuminated by the sun at different times. However, there are some parts of the moon that never see sunlight. These areas are called permanently shadowed regions, and they appear dark because unlike on the Earth, the axis of the moon is nearly perpendicular to the direction of the sun's light. The result is that the bottoms of certain craters, like here at the moon's south pole, are never pointed toward the sun, with some remaining dark for over two billion years. A, that's an amazing number. B, uh, as always, there are links to everything we mention um, on the podcast website, and that video has some very good animations uh, showing you what's going on. So there's this water ice, and then there's also this talk of helium-3 mining and a whole bunch of things. How does that all interact in your research on regolith? Is that a fancy word for dust? Oh, it's sort of like bedrock and dust and rocks and stuff. So it's kind of like the surface. Regolith is what you get when you don't have, like, plate tectonics and um, the rock cycle, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's usually regarded as, as, you know, just inert. But, uh, in fact, Australian research done by Professor Brian O'Brien from University of Western Australia, uh, who sent little dust detector experiments on a number of the Apollo missions, has has shown that as the lunar day and night pass, the dust is sort of activated and becomes like little buzzing clouds of these tiny, tiny dust particles. So, and there's so much about lunar geology that we don't really understand. And I think we need to stop thinking of it as just a dead place and start to think about what kind of intrinsic value some of these environments or landscapes might have and we need to think about them in a solar system context. So just to give you a bit of that, These permanently shadow regions where there's water ice, there's only two other known ones in the solar system. One's on Mercury and the others are on Ceres, which is sort of a mini planetoid thing in the asteroid belt. So I think if we're going to think about 
the, well, the way people are approaching it now is here's this resource, we can use it, so let's just go and rip it all out. And there isn't actually any framework to say, okay, maybe we should leave some of it aside for future research or maybe we should leave some of it aside because the moon kind of has a right to its own existence and being. And this is where the legal personhood idea comes in. So it's different from anthropomorphization or, you know, the attribution of human characteristics or, or creating a, a persona for the moon. It's, it's a different mm. thing to that, although you might argue they all kind of play into it. So the idea is that the moon would have rights to its own survival and that you would have to take these into account when you start to set up your automated mining factories and ripping all these resources out. So it's kind of a possible legal avenue to make sure some kind of environmental management takes place on the moon because at the present time there is nothing to make that happen. Now, we have the concept of legal personhood um, in terrestrial uh, law in a number of ways. We have corporations, which are legal persons uh, and can be sued and all the same things. And we have nation states, which have a number of rights. They have a right to, the, well, their own existence mm -hmm. uh, and all sorts of international law, including the law of armed conflict, relate to that. And a nation can sue another nation for damaging its interests. And I'm thinking of uh, economic rights and, and maritime boundaries and all of those things. It sounds like it's along those lines, but something quite new as well. Yeah, I think so. So you've got those legal persons which are kind of conglomerations of, of people or structures mm. like you have with a nation state. So it is kind of a little bit like that. It's also a little bit like or maybe a lot like giving, granting of legal personhood to, say, the Wanganui River in New Zealand. And right. what's interesting about that is that part of the argument is in, in um, I can't say it properly, but anyway, I'll say in, in Indigenous worldviews that the lines are drawn in different places. So you don't sort of separate nature and culture in the same way and the river is seen as having some agency in human affairs and in order to ensure that, that the, this is sustained, the river needs to be treated differently and so that's what they've done. So in 2017, New Zealand passed laws to make the Wanganui River a legal person. And you, you do get into some curly things here because as a legal person, they, the, they can sue, they can enter into contracts, they can do a whole bunch of things. But communicating this to people who <laughs> might want to use the resources is a bit of a tricky thing. So what they've done... I was just thinking of that. How, how does the river engage a lawyer to act on its behalf. Uh, with a human, we know that because the human says so, right? This person speaks for me. So consent is part of this issue as well. Yeah. And how do you know what the will of the entity is? In the case of the Wanganui River, part of that is because it is part of a much broader belief system. And so they appoint trustees to represent 
the river. And you could argue that, you know, this is kind of circular, so there's no way you can understand or communicate. You know, this is just, it's just sort of a legal, a legal window dressing sort of thing. But I guess, that, well, the moon is also part of the belief systems of, you know, every culture and society on earth, including um, many who draw the lines in different places as well. So if we kind of leave aside all the curly conundrums about sort of setting this in place, for me when I think about this, I think, well, it's somebody who, as as you put it, who would speak for the moon, somebody who's on the moon's side and will not just look at the moon as a resource to be used but will look at the moon's right to exist and the moon's um, character and qualities, I guess, and those that character and qualities are not all going to be about geology or chemistry or history. They they might be about different things. We might need to think how do we define what new kinds of qualities does a planetary environment have that we don't have here on Earth? And how do we how do we define what they are and then how do we ensure that we behave respectfully towards them, I guess? So, so I think that's part of it as well. I think looking at these places as things deserving respect at some level is kind of a key part of what you'd get out of taking that legal personhood route. Well, that leads nicely into this uh, this little news report from NPR, National Public Radio in the United States, from uh, two months ago in July. Good morning, I'm Rachel Martin. If you've been on TikTok, chances are you've come across Witch Talk. It's a niche corner of the internet for self-described witches who lean into astrology and worship different kinds of deities. Recently, some novice witches hexed the moon and upset the whole community. A viral tweet explained it as hurting the world's cosmic energy. Don't worry, though. The moon is scientifically okay and definitely won't fall out of the sky, which is good because 2020 just can't take it. I don't think any of us could take it, but that that in itself, that is disrespecting the rights of the moon, isn't it? Uh, well, it, it kind of is. But when I was asked to comment on this story, I really liked it because even though you could say, okay, hexing is a hostile act, but yep. the witches definitely saw the moon as having agency and not just because – so they weren't hexing the old woman or the old man in the moon. They weren't hexing mm. a lunar-associated deity. It was the moon. And I loved that they accorded the moon such importance as its own entity, as a thing that survived by itself. But I think the other really interesting thing about the witch talkers is it's a, another demonstration of how lines can be drawn in different places. And we're so used to thinking of a certain set of sort of divisions of natural from cultural that we kind of get from the Enlightenment period that it's easy to forget that this wasn't the case for most of human engagement with the moon and it doesn't have to be in the future either. And I think the other thing that uh, really strikes me about the witch talk hex is that it's about action. It's not about you know, it's not a passive belief. They're hexing the moon with the expectation that something changes, that something happens. Do we know what they actually wanted to happen? No. Well, that's been quite 
opaque, actually. <laughs> um, so, so we have lots of discussions from various people who are part of that community, but none of the staff that I've investigated has indicated the nature of the hex or what outcome they expected. And, and maybe they were just doing it to sort of test their powers. But I, I don't know, I just found the whole thing very engaging and I just love the idea of these young women being powerful, powerful enough to have mm. moon. And But you're right, of course, like that, that could be regarded as, as, you know, not a very nice thing to do to something that has, has personhood. Well, finally, Alice, uh, look, we could talk for days, obviously. We always get uh, caught with this. Uh, But I know you want to talk about space dreams. And when I went looking for suitable sounds to go with this segment, I found like a ton of music channels and music mixes, and they all had a certain sound. And and this this one is from a site called Zen Radio uh, and a channel called Space Dreams. is called Eternity, because of course it is, and it's by a a group called Stellar Drone, because (laughs) of course it is. And the more I looked, I found this sub-genre of electronic music called space music, and that includes everything from this sort of thing uh, to 1970s acts like Tangerine Dream and Vangelis. Uh, Vangelis, of course, did the soundtrack for Blade Runner, uh, amongst other things. 
I know you don't mean space dreams by that, but this genre of music, it is a sound that we associate with space, isn't it? It's a very sort of future, it's sort of trippy and futuristic and techy and druggy all at the same time. I find it very Mm. interesting. Do you listen to it yourself? I do from time to time. Uh huh. (laughs) It's kind of restful sometimes and a bit nostalgic sometimes. I quite like it. Yeah, I mean, I I listen to it. I mean, being being in my teens in the seventies, all of this electronic music stuff was a thing, and and certainly you know having a few cones was a thing. Um, and then in electronic music of of the nineteen late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, and beyond, the whole ambient music, but electronic ambient music as opposed to Brian Eno's earlier kind of more analog stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a, a huge thing, those open chords, those very dreamy sequences. But, okay, that's a whole thing that I should take up with a music historian, I think. But space dreams, why is this fascinating you? I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot because I spend my whole research life puddling around in Earth orbit and on other planets and thinking about space and spacecraft and all of this stuff, and yet I have never once dreamt of being on another planet or being in space. All of my dreams, I do have flying dreams from time to time. I think everyone has the flying dreams. It's actually there are three types of dream that cut cross-culturally, that every known culture on Earth has, and flying dreams is one of them. But And I know astronauts sometimes dream of Earth. So they'll be up on, you know, the shuttle or the International Space Station and they'll dream themselves back on Earth. And this is something I'd, I'm going to find out more. I'm going to ferret out astronaut dreams. But I want to know more about people who dream of being on other planets or in other galaxies. I'm kind of envious because I don't have those dreams and I want to know what informs them, like what kinds of spaces they're in. Still, you have very vivid dreams. So have you ever dreamt yes. yourself on another planet? Not at all. And this this intrigues me. Um, the, the vivid dreams I have uh, and the fact that I remember them for hours afterwards, uh, after I wake up, is in fact a known side effect of a particular uh, drug that I take. And I, I, I'm talking medicinally, not recreationally here. But the features are, yes, I notice that I'm moving from place to place in a sort of flying mode or suddenly transforming. No, but they're, they're all very Earth-based. They're all about, you know, recognisable landscapes. And there's a whole side uh, aspect to that. There are, there are places that I repeatedly return to. Um, and here's another trick. My, because they're so vivid, you sometimes you know, that whole thing, am I dreaming or not, almost in that lucid dream sense, uh, which this crosses over into. My GP told me, uh the way you deal with this is if you think you're in a dream, just choose some object that's in your peripheral vision and look at it and then turn away and then look at it again. And if it changes and you do this and it more often changes than not, then you're in a dream. Right, if it changes in a way that couldn't be possible, except that now I know that 
Oh, no. That has become a thing that gets incorporated into the dreamscape. Oh, my heavens, Jill. You must be exhausted after this. It is some mornings because uh, this whole thing, it takes roughly an hour to fully get all of the the dream state stuff out of my head. And so when I'm on Twitter in the mornings and people notice I'm saying I'm having a slow start, it means it's been particularly particularly complicated that morning. Um, but there are other ways I know that I'm in a dream. For example, in the dream, uh, I have a different kind of mobile phone. Oh. oh. And, and it's faulty. And that, that often is a plot kind of aspect in the dream. So you definitely know you're in the dream if you pull it. I know I'm in a dream if it's the wrong kind of phone. <laughs> but you did say space dreams. When I um, also looking on the on the internet thing today, I found that the European Space Agency had a thing tell us your space dreams last year. Um, and it was a competition. They had prizes, but annoyingly, the specific website they put up for it, they took offline. Oh, that is annoying. I would love to get in there and learn more about what uh, people's space dreams were. I'll, I'll see if I can find it on the Internet Archive, and if I can, again, as always, a link on the podcast webpage, because that would be awesome. Wouldn't it be awesome? I think this relates so much to what we were talking about before, like popular conceptions of what space is. And it's also kind of dreaming is so embodied as well. Like it's your brain and your body mixing together to create all of these impressions. So what what is different? Like if people dream themselves in space, where does that come from? What kind what kind of space are they in and, and how does that relate to what they've learnt about space or not learnt about space? Like I would just love to know this. And if you were on Venus still or on Mars, what would you dream then? What would a Martian astronaut dream on the surface of Mars? Your dreams would surely have to be different. That is a beautiful thought to end on, Alice. Um, Alice, thanks so much for your time today. It's been fantastic. It has been actually. I love that. I love that we can just talk like we're having a cup of tea together. And um, as you say, we could go on. <laughs> Even though we're hundreds of kilometres apart. Thank you so much. Dr. Alice Gorman. My absolute pleasure still. Happy dreaming tonight. <laughs> Will do. Well, that's all the edict for now. The next episode, as you know, will be with Dr. Upali Divasekra. Get your trigger words and topics in by midday on Wednesday, the 16th of September. All the links, how to subscribe all of that at the 9pmedic.com until next time i'm still garyan wash your hands the 9pm edict is a skank media production sorry